critical race theory is a movement meant to transform the relationship of race, racism, and power. And so if you are seen as the one having the power and seen as the racist, well, what does the movement say we do with you? Welcome to In Context. This is Michael Easley, your host, and Hannah Seymour, the executive director, is behind the glass running things from the important chair. We are in a wonderful, wonderful opportunity today to have Monique Dusan on the broadcast. Monique is the co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. She has a background in social services and children's ministry. She worked as a missionary to South Africa for over four years, serving children and teachers impacted by drugs, violence, and trauma. She spent two decades advocating for critical race theory, which is why we're talking to her today. But through some interesting stories we're going to hear about today, she saw things differently, some contradictions of CRT and the historic Christian worldview. Monique is now convinced, that's her word, not mine, that CRT is not the best way to achieve racial unity and actively speaks out against the use of CRT within the church. Her mission is to promote a vision for racial healing based on the historic Christian worldview. She is an alum of Biola University and working on your MA. Where are you doing your MA, Monique? At Regent. Regent, good for you. One of my dear friends, Dr. Rob Schwartzwalder, teaches up there, and he is brilliant if you ever run into him. He is one smart cookie. Well, thanks for coming on the broadcast. Well, thanks for having me. You're, good to be here. You're a busy lady, so I want to get right to it. Let's start out. Let's do it. CRT, give the person that we've heard things in the news, media, social media, sound bites. Give us the definition of CRT, what it's being, let's say, sold as, and what it really is. Yes, I think, gosh, when we look at what CRT is, maybe more from an academic perspective, it's a framework or an analytical tool to be able to look into society and see where racism is occurring. There's actually a book called Critical Race Theory written by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanchich. Richard Delgado was one of the founding members of critical race theory as a framework, and he defines it as a movement that is meant to transform the relationship between race, racism, and power. And so critical race theory actually is a movement. It's meant to transform, like Delgado says, the relationship between race and racism or race and power, and to really look deeply, to take a critical look into society and say, where are the issues of racism and who are they impacting? That was the initial endeavor of critical race theory. I think today, many things get passed off as being critical race theory. So the teaching of history. Well, you know, if you teach history, some people are saying, well, that's just critical race theory. Well, we need to be careful and really thread that through. America has an ugly history of race and racism, not just toward Black people, but toward many different racial groups. And so as Christians, how can we present a fuller narrative of history? That's a biblical precedent. You see Israel as a prize and see her as a prostitute. You know, how that's not critical race theory. That's just history. But when we begin to put people in their specific groups and categories and then define people according to those groups or, you know, make people, you know, racist because of their skin color and things like that, some of those things then begin to cross the line and move into more of the critical race theory framework. When we look at 
some of the conversation around oppressed or oppressor. How do we liberate the oppressed and things like that, which goes back into this Marxism and looking at some of Horkheimer and the Frankfurt School and what their endeavors were with critical theory. We do see some overlap between critical race theory and the Frankfurt School many of which were like Marxist thinkers. But many people are confused because some are saying, well, I just want to teach history. It's fine if you want to teach history, but how do we do that without now damning some people as being the oppressor or being evil simply because of the color of their skin? So let's take a step back. And when you think about race and nationality, I remember having one of my dear African-American brother friends years ago had this discussion about what is race? What is nationality? What is ethnicity? Because in scripture, for example, if we look at Acts chapter two, we have 13 different dialectos, Parthians, Scythians, Medes. Are those races in your estimation? No, I believe those are more either ethnic groups or nationalities, like the regional differences. So how do I, so how do I differentiate between a regional ethnicity and race? Well, for the Christian, and I would say even for like a social justice warrior or a critical race theorist, race is a social construct. Race is something that we don't find in scripture, but it's also something that was socially constructed to be able to categorize or classify people, darker skinned people being of gosh, lower value or lower worth, lighter skinned people being at the top. And so what we've seen is this categorization or recategorization of different people groups. And so when we look at the census, I want to say there's like five major racial categories, but truly we are one human race. The differences between skin colors are so minute that it really isn't really worth talking about scientifically. There isn't a, you know, black race and a white race. There is a human race. And this is supported biblically because when we look back at Genesis, we see our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now we can look at the migration of people and the varying of skin colors as people, you know, move north or as they went south, as they were closer to the equator? How did skin adaptations or micro adaptations in facial features and things like that occur? That's a worthy conversation, but that does not mean that we have different races. What we do see is different ethnicities, different ethnic groups based on region. So the region of origin, my initiating, I guess, region of origin would be somewhere in Africa. My father is from Haiti. And when we look at the Haitian, you know, their ethnic track, we track them back to, I want to say the Western part of Africa. But, you know, when I look at my mom, my mom is also Black. She's American. We can also trace her roots back to Africa. So there is an ethnic component to it, but that doesn't mean that just because I have different skin color or different ethnicity that I am different than a white person in DNA structure. So if if we think about critical race theory, the way it has historically been presented, and then maybe again now the popular way it's thought of, those are very different, very different discussions. But what I'm trying to get a baseline on, because I'm with you on human race, 
male and female, even gender is sort of an interesting red herring and discussion yeah. about where we go with all this gender identification. But when he said to make disciples of all ethnos, that was the Greek term. That was the lingua franca in the first century. When the Abrahamic covenant began, it was to be a blessing to the world. Now, the Jewish people, of course, were a people, group, and ethnicity that God chose uniquely, but they were to bless the world. Even the Jews referred to those that weren't Jews as goy or goyim, and that really became somewhat of a derogative term depending on how it was used. Monique, where did we get to race being black and white, and where did we get to race being so vitriolic? I would definitely refer you to the work of Dr. Joe Miller. He's done a ton of research on race and racial groups and where does race originally come from and things like that. And in my conversations with him, he tracks it back to, I would say, the end of the 17th, maybe early 1800s, where we really see this conversation of race and race being something that isn't just to categorize, but also now like categorizing and negatively categorizing. He sees the use of the term being thrown around a lot more and Hmm. being used in different ways to shift conversation that actually separates people. Okay. Now, when you say where, you know, where does the conversation of race enter in, where it is like so negative, gosh, I feel like I don't actually have an answer to that. I would probably venture into saying, though, that somewhere around the maybe early 1900s. We definitely see this in slavery. We see this post-slavery. But the black and white, where race is only black and white, I would say is probably more of a relatively new dynamic in the conversation of race. I think when we read Critical Race Theorists or when we read the book that I mentioned earlier by Richard Delgado, he even talks about a black-white binary that can be... um, construed or constructed through the critical race theory framework. And so I would say that a lot of the conversations around race right now have organically created a black-white binary. It's kind of just organically created this system where when we talk about race, we are talking about black and white or black or white. And many other ethnic groups or racial groups are left out of that conversation. Do you think it's helpful for Let's just say the friendly, those of us who are, there is no red and yellow, black and white. There is no race. It is ethnicity. And, you know, I remember studying in Hebrew in the Old Testament, the table of nations. And when mankind said, let's build, you know, a tower to go see God, uh, the ziggurat, as it were. You know, after that, we have the table of nations where God has dispersed them language-based. He's confused them. We get the word babble, right, from this pejorative term. And the idea is you can't stay together anymore. I'm going to separate you because you cannot understand each other. And there are those who are a lot smarter than me when they look at Old Testament Semitic history and they go, that may well have been the initiation of some ethnic difference because they were one people, but now there's different languages. And even if we look at some of the geopolitical where people lived, and you mentioned equatorial and so forth, certainly those being factors of a theoretical conversation, I thought it was an interesting that when man wanted to become one and be like God, he said, no, <laughs> I'll confuse your languages, and there'll be an ethnic, if you will, association where you'll be comfortable. These will be your people. 
And of course, as we fast forward, we have tribes within Israel. And then when they intermarry, of course, outside the nation Israel, it gets, you know, very complicated. But anyway, that's just for free. <laughs> You're the expert. Let's come back to the topic. What about the popular, Monique, the way people hear CRT in a popular context? What are they typically hearing? Well, it depends on the side that you lay on. You know, if you are maybe unaware of what CRT is, you haven't heard much about it. Usually, I think people, especially if they are white, if they bear white skin, I think the conversation or the fear is that CRT is just going to damn my child, indoctrinate my child into why being white is such a negative thing and, you know, really seek to label my child or to marginalize my child. I think some of those things are true. Maybe not all of them, but I do think that some of them are true and that parents who have children who bear white skin have reason for concern. I think on, you know, another way of seeing this is, you know, if I'm a person of color and I hear CRT, maybe I don't know much about it. Maybe I actually do. And, you know, my fear would be, well, you know, they're just going to victimize my child and tell my child about, you know, this is why you can't do X, Y, and Z. This is why you aren't able to succeed. You won't succeed because of whiteness or because of the hegemony. I think that when parents hear these things who have this fear that my child is going to be victimized, there is reason for for concern. I think that when certain educators or people who are proponents of CRT come in, they can definitely come in with a more victimizing mindset around why people of color can't do certain things. I think from another group, if they hear the words critical race theory, they think, well, this is going to be my way of liberation. Critical race theory should be taught so that we can understand the oppression of all people, the marginalizing of all people, and what we need to do to get rid of racism in America. It supports the idea that America is a racist nation and we need to do all that we can to rid ourselves of racism. So again, it depends on where you're coming from, what you know about critical race theory or what you don't know that kind of shapes and shifts your minds. Because if you don't know a lot, I think there's a lot of room for fear. But if you know a bit more, you can construct critical race theory to be something that it is or something that it isn't. And it's hard for, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of the pigeon for the white, angry male. And so we can't bring up any critical comment about any of this. You can't say anything, you know, negative about anything that's going to somehow help other races, in this particular case, African-Americans. I'm, you know, I'm a nationalist. I'm, any, I'm a fascist. I'm a, any of a number of labels if I call into question CRT. Which, you know, that's a whole other discussion. Let me change. But but you you really hit on a good point. It's that, yes, for some within critical race theory, and many critical race theorists don't all agree. So it's not that we have one framework and we all, like all of the critical race theory theorists have now agreed to, you know, this framework. There are many different takes on, you know, how do we apply this and things like that. But this idea of intersectionality that you're hitting on, which was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, is that I'm a white, male, Christian, able-bodied, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual, you know, these, all of these things. I'm the devil. I'm op- the demon. Yes. Yes. And you are the oppressor. And that is what you do not want to be. 
You definitely don't want to be the oppressor because then you don't have a voice speaking out in more of a hegemonic discourse. Like you are the patriarchy that needs to be smashed or shut yep. down. Yep. So that is a point that we don't want to just run over because as you read critical race theorist books or social justice books and things like that, this is what you find. But I don't think that people really understand. Like some people think that, well, critical race theory is just the teaching of history. Well, it's not. Again, critical race theory is a movement meant to transform the relationship of race, racism and power. And so if you are seen as the one having the power and seen as the racist simply because of the color of your skin or your status within society. If you're seen as participating with racism simply because of systems, well, what does the movement say we do with you? These are the questions that people should ask. Like, well, how do we fix right. the issue with patriarchy if that's what you see the problem being? And are the solutions biblical? Do we find these answers in scripture or are we gaining them from the culture? Okay, let's go on. So at some level, a lot of people have drunk the CRT Kool-Aid. It's being taught in schools as early as elementary school. The new Virginia governor, for example, is trying to ban CRT from public schools. And we have a clip from Condoleezza Rice. I'm sure you've heard it. She was being interviewed on The View. I'd love for you to hear it again and weigh in on her comments. I come out of an academic institution, and this is something that academics debate. What is the role of race and so forth? And and let me be very clear. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go to a movie theater or to a restaurant with my parents. I went to segregated schools till we moved to Denver. Mm-hmm. My parents never thought I was going to grow up in a world without prejudice, but they also told me that's somebody else's problem, not yours. You're going to overcome it, and you are going to be anything you want to be. And that's the message that I think we ought to be sending to kids. One of the worries that I have about the way that we're, we're talking about race is that it either seems so big that somehow white people now have to feel guilty for everything that happened in the past. I Mm -hmm. don't think that's very productive. Or black people have to feel disempowered by Mm -hmm. race. I would like black kids to be completely empowered, to know that they are beautiful in their blackness. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. So somehow this is a conversation that has gone in the wrong direction. Thoughts? Yes. Yes, I co-sign on that 100%. (laughs) You know, to say that we need to destroy all the white systems, there isn't really a lot of definition given around that, one. And so what does that even mean? But two, like just on a practical level, you see things like on social media where there are groups or even just friends who will say, you know, well, this comment isn't meant for white people. White people can't speak to this. If white silence equals violence, but then you turn around and say, well, white people should be speaking out about this because racism is a white person's problem and white people are the initiators of racism and all that. What do you do? How do you move? If I say something, then I'm wrong because I'm white, but my white silence is violence and I should be, you know, speaking out. But then as soon as I do speak out, what I'm saying is based on racism. (laughs) You know, it's like, how do I move? And gosh, which which, which again, to to inject just a moment, again, that's a wonderful argument to keep a guy like me on my heels. Yeah. Shut up. Get out of the way. You don't have a voice in this. Even if you try to, it's going to be the wrong thing. 
Yes. And gosh, to say that it's not being taught in schools would mean that you would actually have to go to every school across America to actually know that it's not being taught in schools. But yet I think what we see more and more is the proof that it is being taught in school. There was an article, I want to say in the Washington Post recently, about a teenager who was learning some of the frameworks in his high school. You know, so it's not that it's not there. Part of the other problem with the idea that critical race theory isn't being taught in schools is that educators, any educator, I would say, in the last, who graduated in the last 10 to 20 years, 10 to, yeah, 15, 20 years, has learned how to do education within the critical theory framework. This is embedded within the college education structure. So the idea that, well, I'm not teaching about Horkheimer in, you know, sixth grade or third grade or things like that. Okay, true. But the lens in which they approach their students is from a critical social theory perspective. We get things like math is racist. And so how do we break down math? Um, Science is racist. Logic is racist. And so when your teachers approach a student from that way, it's not necessarily that they, like I said, that they're teaching, you know, all of the tenets of critical race theory, that racism is embedded in every system or interest convergence or, you know, things like that. They don't have to teach that. They just need to come in having been taught from that framework, the approach that they use with their students will be one of the critical social theories. And it's striking to me, Monique, how many of these issues have facets and in a way metastasize so that you can't keep up with it. There's no agreement on what it means. The nomenclature varies. The context certainly varies, whether it's a school system or whether it's maybe university is very different than the elementary school system because universities are now, you have to have safe areas and so forth, and it's become so vitriolic. And then, of course, we add COVID to it, which makes it such a crazy dynamic for young men and women in college these days. But it just seems that the target keeps changing so rapidly that it's like, what are we really arguing about? What's the issue here? Is it to destroy all whiteness in our culture? Anything that we don't like, we're going to reframe it and revise it. And then it, of course, bleeds over into Black Lives Matter. And we're like, these issues are so hard to understand. They're emotional. We understand that. But goodness gracious, help me a little bit here. Let me start it this way. What's the work of combating racism? What does that even mean? Well, it can mean a myriad of things. The work can be to do your own research and understanding America's racist history. The work can be to read all the books. So make sure you're reading Robin DiAngelo. Make sure you're reading Jamar Tisby or Ibram X. Kendi or some of the the bigger names. Read the book, and I'm forgetting the author's name right now, but like Divided by Faith. Make sure you're reading people like Cornell West. So, you know, make sure you're doing the work and being educated. But then there's another component to the work is making sure that you are working against systems that elevate or perpetuate whiteness, whiteness being that white Western European way of thinking. So 
not saying that I agree with this or that I would deem this a white Western European way of thinking, but things like being on time, being respectful, kindness, like many of the things and tenets that we find in the scriptures are now being deemed as part of whiteness. You know, here in America specifically, it would be knocking down specific structures or systems that people say, you know, disenfranchise minority groups. It could be the prison system. It can be policing. This is why we need to defund the police. It can be the banking system, the home loan system, whatever that system is that is deemed to be racist and to disenfranchise people of color. Well, we need to be working against that. So let's just take you mentioned, I think you're inferring like statues. We're going to tear down any, you know, any statue that was Confederate, any statue or monument that a person has slave. There's a part of me, I can understand that, but there's also a part of me. Why don't we take the opportunity to teach about the country? We had a civil war. Let's don't forget this. Let's don't forget why we fought it. And yes, it was no small part about racism, but it was also about slavery. But there were other issues at play too. And it's like, why don't we teach the whole history of it as opposed to let's just tear down a flag or a statue and somehow now we're making a difference. We're doing a work to make, you know, make things more understandable or equal or whatever. Well, again, that make any it, sense? It, it does that make, make sense. sense. <laughs> and I find myself going back and forth on the conversation of, of statues and yeah. things that should be torn down, things that should be left up. How do we tell the whole narrative and things like that? But the goal is revolution. Critical race theory is a movement. But what is this movement meant to do? What is it meant to build up to? I mean, you just don't have a movement for, well, hey, we had a movement. No, there has to be an end goal. The end goal would be the revolution. <laughs> it would be the complete revival vitalizing of the society. And so for many, this is... That's chilling. I'm sorry, that's just chilling. Yeah, it is. If the objective is to revolutionize the greatest experiment that we've known historically, what is the outcome, Monique? To me, it's socialism. It's a more socialist mindset. I know that people like Ibram X. Kendi, for him, I think when I read How to Be an Anti-Racist, it's this utopian society where racism doesn't exist, where, you know, any kind of ism no longer exists because you are constantly participating in life as being anti-racist. For Kendi, there's many different types of racism racism for him in, in his structure. So it would just be anti-ism. I'm no longer sexist or how he would deem, you know, some, he would deem probably Christians to be homophobic. Not saying that Christians are homophobic, but any comment that is negative in the culture's eyes against LGBTQ plus or things like that would be deemed as homophobic to a degree, I would say by Kendi. So making sure that there is no ism, there is no sexism, no bodyism, no ageism, no ableism, no, the list just goes on and on and on. But that would be, for Kendi, the goal is this utopian society where, you know, things go according to how he sees the culture should be going, whether that's a biblical precedent or not. Does that make sense? Yes, again, but my mind's run 100 directions. I remember H.G. Wells' book on the time machine, which was a subtext for how things were advancing. And as things advanced, we were losing meaning. And in the end of the movie depiction, it's much easier than his book. He advances to this culture where there's a basically people that do nothing all day. It's universal income. They all have food. No one works. They're people of leisure. 
and then a siren goes off and they become food for this industrialized Cro-Magnon monsters that live underground that, that basically they're raising livestock. And it's such a pejorative statement, but it's like, that's a utopian experience. Somebody has to eat <laughs> in order to provide this universal income, this we're all equal, there can't be any, there's a boy or a girl who made an A in math, nope. We all have to get the same grade. We can't give an award to the best soccer player. I mean, at what point, again, when you said revolution and getting away with isms, there's no aspiration. There's th- it, it goes against the creation mandate. It goes against what God spoke over humans in Genesis. It goes against, you know, you hit on it so well, like this universal basic income. We were created to work. Like, we were created to rule and to reign. You know, if you read Genesis, I feel like, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, but Adam had worked before he had Eve. You know, so this is part of what God spoke over humans in the beginning. And to say things like, you know, you just need to give me my reparations, I don't need to work for this. Or when we look at things like the universal basic income and all that, it takes away from the human dignity. It takes away from let, what let God said in Genesis. Yeah. On restitution, and I won't name the name because he's an acquaintance slash friend of mine, African-American preacher who's author, very successful, but he's pro-reparations. And I ask, I say, what price? Let's just say reparations were proper. What number? In one sense, there's not a number big enough. Well, here you couldn't give a person millions of dollars to make reparation for the injustices done. I mean, there's no. And my point is, you can't put a price on it. On the other hand, I mean, all of our ancestral lineage—white, black, you know, German, whatever—we have horrific things in our history. No we do. doubt, we have horrific things in our history. Every people group, everybody has owned or been owned by somebody at some point in history. I think America tends to make the issue of slavery our original sin. And I've heard Christians say this. You know, there are groups that say, well, racism is America's original sin. It isn't. We find racism in the Bible or, you know, racism in the Bible. We find this idea of ethnic partiality in the Bible. But the conversation always on reparations always goes white to black. So white people need to pay me because I'm black and there was slavery in America. So, you know, please give me my five dollars. I will take gas money. Now, here's the issue. Black people also own black people. There were Native Americans who were selling African slaves. And even if, you know, most of the rebuttal you hear to that was, well, it was a small percentage Well, when you look at the American South, it wasn't the entirety of the South who owned slaves. So do we just say, well, just because white people own slaves, well, now they're the only people group that needs to pay reparations? Or do we look at reparations as a whole? We look at slavery as a whole. And then I would need to pay, you know, reparations because black people also you know, owned and sold black people. I don't want to pay reparations. It's just not, it's not my jam. I'm not up for it. But we don't look at the entirety of history. And this is again why I say that we should be telling a more complete narrative of history, even the ugly parts, because people don't understand that black people did own black people. Native Americans owned black people and sold black people. So it wasn't just a thing of, 
you know, only white people participated in slavery. What do you do with the freed black men or the free people who were black who came over as indentured servants and did their time and then, you know, were released? It's not as cut and dry as people make it seem like, well, you're white, so you're guilty of slavery. Well, and even if you tried to put some definition in it, it's a bad illustration, but, you know, maybe two out of four legs at best. But when the Biden administration is talking about giving half a million dollars to Ooh, don't uh, get me started. immigrants that were in a certain window, I'm like, okay, let's just say we do that. What if you missed it by a week either way? I mean, it's unconscionable yes. that we could put a dollar price. Let's say for a moment we were wrong. Let's say for a moment we should do something. Who's going to put that number to it? And what about the rest of the working Americans, no matter their racial ethnicity, who've been working a job for you know 25 years, who their highest earning year was $40,000? Yeah. I mean, it's just unconscionable that we – my point was, what dollar do you put on a human life? What dollar do you put on – the indignity of what happened to us historically. Oh, never mind that we're murdering 1.7 million people a year, but that's a different subject. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now that I've gone off my no, rant, I, I what, what do churches, what do churches need to do, Monique? Cause you know, as a pastor on and off now for 40 some years, it's always the pastor's fault. We don't teach on this. We don't teach on that. You should talk about voting. You should talk about race. You should talk about gay marriage. You should, I mean, everything's our fault. Wow. Everything's the pastor's mm-hmm. fault. And at some level, sure. The pulpit is a powerful platform, but you know, my objective is to get people in the Bible for 40 minutes a week, because I know most of my audience hasn't looked at their Bible since mm-hmm. last Sunday. And so my objective is I've got 40 minutes to open God's word and teach. And you know, if I'm teaching through Acts, we're going to talk about some yes. of these issues. If I'm teaching through parts of the Old Testament where they enslaved a people group, you can be sure I'm going to talk about Old Testament identification, about captives of war who were slaves. You can be sure I'll address that issue. But do I need to take to the pulpit and tell pastors around the country, you need to teach about what it means to be black in America? No. You need to teach about racial reconciliation. You need to have a an African-American man or woman in your pulpit and ask some questions about what it's like to grow up in America as a black person? No, because, I mean, what my experience is, would be different than somebody else's. And, you know, this whole, Granted. you know, idea that there is just one black experience in America doesn't work. What I would say pastors need to do is get back to to scripture, get back to making sure that your people are catechized, making sure that there's discipleship happening in your church and that people understand the word of God. They understand the tenets and the principles of historic Christianity. How were people discipled in the earliest church, you know, right after Jesus? What did they believe? What does the word of God actually say? I don't know that, you know, in many churches, that comes forward from the pulpit. I think a lot of times it's about, you know, how does this impact me? There's a lot of sinker sensitive things happening from the pulpit, but to go like, hey, look, this is what the word of God says, and this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it is so important. How do you protect the sheep? We have to be able to protect the sheep with giving them boundaries. This is how, you know, this is our place. This is how we participate with one another. Why do we participate with one another that way? Well, because this is what the Word of God says, but this is the boundary line for being a Christian. When you step over this line, you are outside of the realm of orthodoxy. But I don't believe that many pastors or many parishioners understand what the boundary line of orthodoxy is. 
And when, when the understatement of the day, when, but then because, because we have these, instead of solid lines, we have these dotted lines on our orthodoxy. When a false narrative comes in or a heresy comes in, instead of squashing that and saying no immediately, kind of like Jesus at the wedding, I think it's Matthew, when there was the wedding guest who came in, but he wasn't in wedding garb. He had the servants take him out. And he said, you're going to go to like weeping and gnashing of teeth, if I'm not mistaken. Like he's, you're going to go out. When a false narrative or a heresy comes into the church, instead of trying to caress it, trying to make it more biblical, trying to comfort it and play with it, and maybe we can make it Jesus-like. If I throw a Bible verse with it, we need to throw it out to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and say, no, you got to go. And I will either correct the person who brought the false narrative into the church, or I will treat you as an unbeliever if you don't want to come back around to the boundary of orthodoxy. But we're not here for that conversation conversation in the church. Nobody wants to do church discipline. No one wants to say, you gonna have to go. We're too sensitive. We're too, that's going to hurt their feelings. You know, what if they stop tithing? <laughs> what if they tell so-and-so over here? Oh, they don't tithe you know, anyway. Well, let there's me tell that, you. you know, or, you know, if, if I take a hard line, then everybody might leave. It would be better for you to stand alone than for you to stand with a false idol. I'm glad you don't have any strong feelings about this. Money. I know. And see, yeah, <laughs> this is why I get in trouble. Well, it, it, uh, no, you're doing great. It's like the LGBTQA thing. And I find it, you know, and I've got Christopher Yuan, whose name I use frequently. He's a brother and a friend. And I so appreciate his unwavering because you know, we have the same issue. You intimated earlier. It's our identity in Christ, not our identity in X. Yes. It's not our identity in our ethnicity. It's not our identity in our sexual proclivity or our temptations. I mean, it's ludicrous, but that's where the culture has gone. And that has permeated the church so pervasively that if you say things as strident, well, I do say some pretty strident things, but at the same time, it's, you know, you're not being loving. Mm -hmm. You're hateful. You're, and of course, in my case, I'm an old, angry white guy, so it doesn't. But you know, anger and love, works. all of these things we find in the scriptures, but now culture well, has redefined it and has told the church, this is love. This is how you are loving. This is how you are tolerant. We need to get back to what does it mean to be loving according to a biblical standard. If you read Jude, I want to say it's verse like, somewhere between like 20 to 24, it says to continue in God's love by snatching them from the fire. So there has to be a component of love that also involves a good yank, a good snatch, a good correction, a strong word, that that is also love. But today we don't participate in love that way. Love doesn't hurt feelings. Love, you know, is tolerant. Love allows for things to happen. And nah, we've lost the plot. When we participate that way, My. we've lost our way. And that is what breaks down unity. Our unity must be built upon Jesus Christ. If our unity isn't built upon Jesus Christ, we just having like a potluck. Like, I'm not here for the potluck. Like, we need to be able to walk together to understand the foundational tenets of Christianity. What did the Lord say? How does he want us to act and to be with one another? And then if the world can't get on board with that, well, I didn't expect them to get on board with it anyway. Right. My friend Dave Gibson says, Michael, I don't know if you need encouragement or a dope slap. He calls it the spiritual dope slap. Sometimes we have to give people a spiritual dope slap and say, snap yes. out of it. This is wrong. Yeah. If you could, and I know you're asked this all the time, so this is maybe not an easy answer, but it's a frequent question. 
give me one or two things you would love the church to hear from Monique when you think about whether it's CRT or Black Lives Matter or some of these issues that we feel like, oh, I'm on my heels. I need to do so. I don't know what this. I don't. Uh, I can't read about. It. I don't understand it. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to get in trouble. How would you encourage them? Get in the word. What does the word of God say? Instead of wanting to take a sociology class, take a hermeneutics class. Understand how to interpret the Bible. If you can interpret the Bible and understand what the word of God is saying in context, not just the Bible verse, when these parallel kind of universe things come into the church, these crazy making ideas, when they seep into the church, you'll be able to say, oh, but when I read this in context, that doesn't align. Micah 6.8 does not mean we need to start a welfare program or a homeless ministry. What does Micah 6.8 mean in context? How would the original reader have understood Micah 6.8? What was the writer saying when he wrote Micah 6.8? What does Micah 6.8 mean in context? When I read Micah 1.1, how can I relate Micah 1.1 to Micah 6.8? Instead, what we're doing is we're looking and reading sociology books and then trying to grab scripture that supports the sociology book. You need to be looking at scripture. Leave the sociology alone and get into hermeneutics, get into the word. That would be my number one encouragement to Christians, the number two encouragement would be to say, hello, family. We need to remember that we are family. Read Ephesians. Read through the book of Ephesians. How do we participate with one another as family? And when somebody comes in with some off theory or statement that says, well, we can't truly be family until you repent or lament of your whiteness. Well, I would kick them to the curb and say, well, obviously you, (laughs) you don't, you don't, you didn't read the same book that I'm reading because in context, the word of God says that we are family in context. When I go over to second Corinthians, I want to say second Corinthians five, it says that we don't regard people according to the old man anymore. So if you're not regarding me to the according to the old man anymore, even if I am white and I was a racist yesterday, your Bible tells me that when I come into faith in Jesus, I am not going to be held account, not necessarily held accountable because if I've done things and, you know, all of that, like there might be some accountability that needs yeah. to be upheld. But you're not going to regard me according to that old man anymore. You're not going to look at me from that lens I am a brother or sister. And that's a hard road to walk. It's not always easy. But these are the things that we have been called to. It would be a lot easier for me to pick up Ibram Kendi's book and say, I'm going to be an anti-racist. That is easy work. It's hard Mm. to walk the road that Christ has called us to. It's easy for me to be seeker sensitive, for me to say, sure, I know you, you know, you're, you identify with these pronouns over here, but we just gonna love you anyway. That's easy. It's harder for me to stand up and say, no, God has called you to something different. And whether you hate me, whether you walk away from me or not, I am going to continue to call you by your God-given identity. That's a harder road. But my encouragement to the church would be to stand up for the hard road. This is what we're called to. Monique Dusan, I did not ask her to say the word in context as often as she did, but I loved it every time I heard it. (laughs) Monique Dusan, thanks for being on the broadcast. God bless you. you. I hope you find uh, encouragement and courage to keep pressing on and uh, all that you're doing. Thanks for who you are, the stand you're taking, and the voice we need to hear. Thank you. You find out more about Monique in the show notes. We'll have all the information about her ministries, how you can link to her, some of the books she referred to. And this is Michael Easley in Context. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 